This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Tansay. Bonjour. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the President. I'm your host, Brad Regeer from Winnipeg, located in the Treaty 1 territory and the heartland of the Métis Nation. This episode is presented by Lawyers Financial. Get expert advice in quality insurance and investments with Lawyers Financial. And because they're not-for-profit, you get exceptional value. Get started at lawyersfinancial.ca. The 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission report contained 94 calls to action, things that need to be done in order for reconciliation to take place. In this episode, we're going to discuss calls to actions 42, 50, 51, and 62, all of which deal with recognizing and implementing Aboriginal justice systems. North American colonizers were prejudiced towards the written word. Because Indigenous peoples didn't have libraries stocked with law books, European settlers could more easily disregard their legal traditions and systems of justice. After more than 150 years of European-based laws, what would it look like to recognize and implement an Aboriginal justice system? And whose laws are we talking about? Professor John Burroughs is the Canadian Research Chair in Indigenous Law at the University of Victoria and has written extensively on Indigenous legal traditions. He is Anishinaabe Ojibwe and a member of the Chippewa of Nowish First Nation in Ontario. Naomi Metallic holds the Chancellor's Chair in Aboriginal Law and Policy at Dalhousie University's Schulich School of Law. She's been on the Best Lawyer in Canada list in Aboriginal Law since 2015. She's from the Listigouche Mi'kmaq First Nation in Gespegewagi. Naomi, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. Canada's Indigenous peoples are not homogenous and neither are their legal systems. For many, the law is tied to land and to tradition, which can vary widely. What are we talking about when we talk about implementing Indigenous law? So for me, it's understanding that law is something that's functional. It has an application. And so I think about standards, principles, authority, criteria, guideposts, signposts, measures, that is things that we look to to make decisions as we regulate our affairs and uh, resolve our disputes. I would probably add, I I agree with all of that, of course, and would uh, add to that, that um, I think it's really important for Indigenous peoples as a matter of, of justice and as a matter of um, having greater control over their lives um, to be able to um, have access to all those things that John just mentioned and uh, that it brings a, a legitimacy uh, to, the, to the work that they need to do and, and to the wellness they need to bring to their communities. What do you think the difference are between Indigenous and European legal traditions? Well, the verb focus within Algonquian languages, of which Mi'kmaq and Anishinaabe are both a part, means that we're looking to conjugate as opposed to classify when we think about law. And you know, verbs are about action. And so this idea of conjugating action or inviting participation, seeing that law is not just specialized in parliaments or legislatures given to courts that are assisted by lawyers and judges, but in fact, 
the community itself has a role in continually making and remaking the law and participating in a more diffuse way to guide our affairs, provide um, the criteria, as I mentioned earlier, to get us to these regulatory affairs, these disputes that we need to resolve amongst ourselves and amongst ourselves and those of other nations. Yeah, and I, I, um, I think I, what I would add uh, to that is um, I've only, you know, John's, John is, you know, is a sort of grandfather of all of this, not to age you because you're a very young looking John, um, but you know, I mean, you're the, one of the, you are the leading thinker in this in Canada and have been writing about this, you know, since, well, for a very long time. I am only a real uh, new, new to this. I've started teaching it here at uh, my law school in the last uh, couple of years, but still very much consider myself a student of it. Um, and very excited about it. And I've taught a, a methods course here at our school for the last couple of years, but it's been interesting to teach this to our, to our students. We, you know, we, we don't have a trans-systemic program like you guys have at UVic, but um, my students, you know, one of the first things we sort of talk about is um, uh, legal theory, right? And, and you know, uh, this idea of positivism, everything is, you know, uh, top down from the state and that it's only the state and, and the very structured regimes within it, as you say, who are uh, making decisions. And, you know, we start to unpack that and see that even that, that's a sort of even a myth within, <laughs> um, you know, the Canadian uh, common law and civil law systems. And it's far more complex and nuanced when you look at it. But when you start to unpack it and, and think about what the role of law ought to be in governing our relationships with each other, uh, my students uh, often will observe that they say, geez, you know, our Canadian system really doesn't allow for that, uh, that much participation. And we have these ideas that rules are rules and rules come from lawmakers. And they realize that, you know, individuals um, uh, all have, you know, a role to play in, in sort of how they um, behave with each other and vis-a-vis -vis other, other things in creation. Um, and a lot of them take a big takeaway that they see is seeing the law very different. And, uh, even questioning Canadian law as not uh, and institutions as not necessarily being as responsive as it should be to our roles as as citizens uh, engaging with each other. Do you, do you think there's any similarities between European and, and Indigenous legal traditions? I do, in that we are both looking for these standards, principles, criteria, authority, measures, signposts, guideposts to help us uh, take action in the world. That is. It's not a free-for-all. There is uh, patterns to the way that we want to organize our behavior. So we're both searching for patterns. We're both looking for ways to ensure that there's a sense of certainty and an order and predictability. Um, it's just the case that what we choose as those standards and the way we go about um, facilitating that order has a different um, uh, emphasis. Yeah. Um... <laughs> That's an excellent answer. <laughs> what John said. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, again, John has thought about all of these things uh, much longer than I have. I can only draw on the experience I've had in trying to teach this to my own students for the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, there, 
what we see when we start to like really put Canadian common law and civil law under sort of a, a microscope is that there's there there are lots of ways that there are similarities. Exactly as John says, we are searching, you know, for for those uh, standards, guideposts, etc., that and principles that um, you know guide how we're supposed to to live with each other. Um, and uh, yeah, far more similarities when you really get down to it, right? When you start to see law as not these sort of discrete, um, you know, contract law, family law, uh, the way we've, we've sort of really loved to put everything in categories and boxes, but it's about, um, you know, uh, how, do we, how do we address harm? How do we uh, address uh, how we're supposed to engage with other beings in creation? Uh, and, you know, those are the same things that, you know, Canadian and civil laws are answering. Um, but it's it's interesting when you sort of take off those strict um, sort of labels or characteristics and sort of look at it, you can start to also ask, like, is, is this what we need? Is this appropriate? Are these the standards that should be guiding us? And uh, I think that's a real... That's something in, in teaching um, the methods course that we that I have been teaching for the last couple of years that I think, again, students really appreciate starting to see that, you know, law is not this pre-made thing, um, but it's something that is crafted by humans and that should always be um, and can always and should always be, um, you know, in a we should be in a, in a dialogue about it and with it. Well, let's maybe like explore that both of you teach um john you you employ indigenous teaching methods in your courses and naomi you teach a course in practicing indigenous law how do you and i years and years ago i taught undergrad students uh sort of the the classic aboriginal law course and and john i used your uh um uh your textbook and for example at the beginning of that textbook you have a <clears throat> there's a there's a story um, that that is part of the reading and you know there I was teaching undergrad students and I'm how do you how do you how do you teach that to students um, can, can, can both well, of you expand like on a lawyer that? I say it depends because the <laughs> idea is that you're never just teaching materials you're teaching people and uh, different people, different audiences have different interests and ways that they learn. And so it's always trying to be responsive to the people that you're interacting with and developing a relationship as a result. And so if you're thinking about teaching people rather than materials, then there is this necessity of understanding the um, ways that you can touch on different interests that folks have. So sometimes I do teach uh, Indigenous law through stories, stories that are old and uh, well spoken of in our tradition, uh, but also sometimes more contemporary stories. I also do a lot in breaking down the language. Uh, both uh, Mi'kmaq and Anishinaabe are, are morphine languages, a polysyllabic, and there's a lot that you can learn as to how the language is put together that directs us to judgment, directs us to relationship, as I mentioned earlier about the verbs and participating with one another. And it actually also directs us to the natural world because often these sounds in the language are to correlate with 
the rivers and the birds and the plants and the animals that surround us. And so it's trying to lead people from perhaps what is familiar to them and then go on a journey to take them through ideas and understandings that they might not initially appreciate or have access to, but as you go from the familiar to the less familiar, they can see the relationship. And um, then again, to talk just about we're talking with people, not just materials, uh, then you can bring in um, the, the written uh, word as appropriate uh, to um, sort of find points of connection again for them after you've um, done this work. There's, there's, this, there's this study in law and, um, and social sciences that talks about how to be persuasive. And to be persuasive is to both break connections and make connections. You can never just merely break connections for people. Um, there always has to be something that comes along the side that makes connections as well. And ideally, it's the students themselves that are breaking and making those connections. So their agency is uh, empowered rather than forcing something on them or um, you know, insisting that this is the right way or the only way. Um, you hopefully invite them on that journey of themselves questioning what they think law is and how it might uh, relate to uh, the way they practice and act in the world, particularly in relationship to the communities that we're talking about when we're dealing with Indigenous peoples. Naomi, how would you, uh, how, how do you teach this to students? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about my, the course that I've been teaching. <laughs> I feel I'm prefacing every answer with, I've just started, right? <laughs> so I don't pretend to have all the answers. I've been doing this for two years. And if I can take a, a brief sort of, a couple sort of uh, brief asides first, um, you know, what John was saying about the the, the language uh, and using stories as well. Um, I uh, My father was a, uh, he, he has passed away, but he was a Mi'kmaq linguist and, um, um, you know, uh, the way things were when I grew up, we weren't uh, actually speaking the language very much at home. So I've come to learn it as a um, as a second language. But my sister actually became a Mi'kmaq teacher. So she is my she is my uh, my my teacher now. I take lessons with her weekly via Skype. Um, but um, there is something so exciting about learning the language, but also seeing it. it it's um, the possibilities that it can have for uh, for. Um, showing us Mi'kmaq law. So anyway, that's an area that I am just starting my journey on. Uh, but yeah, our language is so exciting that, that, that it is made up of morphemes, like John says, and uh, there's so much that you can learn from it. Anyway, little little digression. Uh, okay, how do I teach? Uh, well, first of all, let me talk a little bit about, uh, I do teach Aboriginal peoples in the law, basically Canadian law as it relates to um, indigenous peoples. I also teach part of that in my constitutional law course. And I was feeling quite dissatisfied for the past few years of because I'm just teaching that law and I actually kind of finding depressing to teach it a little bit uh, because the doctrines are still really problematic. You know, they're undergirded by the doctrine of discovery and other problematic doctrines. But I've really in the last year or so, um, taken, I've told this year's class that this is, you know, we're not, uh, I'm not teaching this course, so you just go apply these really problematic doctrines and don't think about it otherwise. Um, and we are, you know, the whole class is sort of set up uh, of introducing them to various tools that they can be using to challenge that law. 
uh, and that includes indigenous law, that includes the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that includes treaty federalism, and at, at various points where we keep coming back to those tools and using them at each point that we're at. And I think they're enjoying it quite a bit more, and I'm enjoying it quite a bit more because it feels quite a bit more hopeful uh, to see that there are ways that we can unpack some of this. So I am bringing in indigenous law in my Aboriginal Peoples Law course in, in that way and, and trying to you know really show examples where uh, you know, Indigenous law can be used in informing Aboriginal law. Uh, we're doing treaties this coming week and uh, talking uh, a bit about the Restul case and how Anishinaabe law was used there to inform the interpretation of the treaty. That was pretty exciting. Um, and in the course that I am teaching, it's a methods course. So half of it, it well, after we kind of get through the why Indigenous law needs to be uh you know practiced in canada and that you know all lawyers should know it you know ad addressing the why of calls uh, to action 27 28 and 50 as they relate to indigenous law then we're you know beginning to unpack the how not all the how because the, the how is huge but the how and the how do indigenous people um, after, you know, uh, centuries of, uh, of colonialism and, um, and uh, you know, especially the last 150 years of imposition of Canadian laws, how, how do we revive, um, you know, our, our legal systems? And uh, yeah, looking at some of the really exciting methods um, that can be used to, um, you know, draw out our laws from stories, as John was saying, from the land, from the language and starting to look at how we can use that. And um, uh, the, the the showcase of my class is that we uh, we use the story briefing method. I mean, we look at, we spend several classes on different methods, um, but we do do one where we uh, read five or six Mi'kmaq stories and then use the story case briefing method that has been um, particularly developed by uh, Val Napoleon and Hadley Friedland and uh, create a, a framework of uh, Mi'kmaq legal principles. And we might supplement that with other principles we've seen throughout the course. Um, and uh, then they they actually apply it to a, a fact pattern involving a, a not so fictitious uh, local Mi'kmaq community. And they apply that and they we actually have a moot and they, they argue solely from the basis of, of those principles, just to give them a sense that it is doable and practical. Um, and they really get a lot out of it. And they write a judgment uh, also towards the end of the class, sort of playing with those principles as well. That sounds amazing. What, what for both of you, what, you, you have these fresh faced students come into your classes and well, at least in first year, maybe by third year, they're not so fresh anymore. Um, what, what are you hoping to impart on these students? I think the idea is that they engage in their learning journey, that they become self-reflective, that they take responsibility for understanding the materials. You know, you can only do so much as a teacher to gesture towards and point towards an opportunity that then they can take to become lifelong learners. And so creating some enthusiasm around the materials, uh, encouraging the students that they can do it. Often there's that worry or wonder that they're not up to the task, but found over my 28 career that of course they are and letting them know that and, and telling them uh, that in many different ways is an important dimension of that. It's also the case that they can 
become self-reflective by getting exposed to different perspectives that are there within the materials and that is also there within the classroom. So trying to invite different points of view and not have a party line or so just one ideological perspective that we take, but understanding that uh, Anishinaabe law at least is built through counsel and that counseling process is, is um, respectful of the different gifts that we bring to that site and also encouraging um, disagreement. Disagreement is really key for working with law because law is not just about consensus and finding that moment of uh, judgment where we're all together, but also understanding that there's need to um, disagree, but do so agreeably so that we can continue to have a conversation through time with the students. So we spend time talking about the importance of disagreement to law and try to model that uh, in the way that we interact with one another. You know, we teach transystemically here at the University of Victoria in our joint law degree, Indigenous Law and the Common Law. And that gives the students an opportunity to see the perspicuous contrast and the vocabularies of comparison. And we kind of um, model that trickster uh, that's within many of our, our different traditions, Gluskap or Nanabujo or Raven or Kaidi or Old Man. Um, that is uh, understanding that when we put different perspectives together, um, they don't always match. And, those, and that's, that's a productive place of seeing where that gap is and what we can learn when we sit with that gap. So, you know, yesterday I was teaching freedom of expression. We talked about the Keegstra case and we talked about the most recent Ward case that's been argued before the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, where a comedian um, ridiculed a disabled uh, man. And the question was whether or not uh, freedom of expression allowed uh, that to occur. And so we took that uh, point up uh, very strongly in the Canadian context. We did that for an hour, but then we looked at a Navajo case that uh, talks about freedom of expression, that also put responsibility in the context of freedom of expression, having expression that occurs relationally. And then we went to some Anishinaabe stories about uh, freedom of expression from sort of time beyond time, uh, and then some more contemporary stories there as well. So the point that I'm making is that if students can find their voice and recognize that they are, can be who they are and then learn in relationship to who they are and, and, and reach out to open their minds to other points of view, then they become self-educators uh, uh, through time as they then have the tools to go out and do it on their own and not just have sort of, sort of spoon-fed to them, uh, but they themselves become the, kind of the hunters and the fishers and the gatherers of uh, law on their own as they uh, find a way to sustain themselves uh, through their practice into and beyond law school. Yeah, I think that that's a, a huge thing of uh, the, you know, I, I think that uh, teaching these materials of sort of uh, one of the uh, above all sort of impacts is this opening of the mind and, and being becoming a much more sort of flexible and, and nimble thinker, but also going out and looking for uh, answers. And so I would say that's part of uh, what I uh, hope to uh, achieve or impart. Um, in the uh, in the course that I teach, it, it's interesting. We have a, quite a large uh, Indigenous population, I guess, for the relative size of our school. Um, so my class is usually a good mix of Indigenous and non-Indigenous students. And to some extent, I have uh, um, 
not exactly different expectations for them, but sort of how the course impacts them uh, can be a little different. I think, you know, it's it's an upper year, uh, not uh, voluntary class, like non-mandatory. And, uh, you know, I think there's a whole discussion we can have just around sort of mandatory courses. But, you know, the, the ones who want to take my course are, you know, uh, they're not going to be people who are, you know, their minds are already closed against uh, stuff like this. They want to know more. They want to, uh, they're, they're open-minded. Um, but I think one of the things sometimes they come just knowing that they're interested, but not knowing much else about the, the subject and maybe have come to the topic with a certain romanticized view of things. And what I hope to arm them with by the go is to know that it's a lot more complicated and it can be difficult, but also arming them with the tools to be able to be uh, good allies and to also know about, um, you know, the different methods that they can work and how they can support communities and uh you know we do talk about the the difficult things and, and the 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 hard things this is not just a it can be overly romanticized i think in terms of like how hard it might be for communities to start doing this work and uh it will involve debate and discussion and um i guess for the non-indigenous uh students what i hope i've armed them with by the time they go is you know to see indigenous people as reasonable and rational and resilient um, and also to, um, you know, know that there's complexities and difficulties, but not turn away when something might get tough, right? To say, oh, geez, it's just too complicated. I, I you know, maybe I'll go spend my time on some other <laughs> topic. Uh, so I, I hope that, the, you know, that they've even solidified more their, their commitment to be allies. Um, and with Indigenous students, the sort of hope, I guess, or expectation is just a real empowering in, I think law school, particularly learning about common law, and I even I even try to give my my indigenous students, particular who take my Aboriginal peoples in the law class and even constitutional law, like trigger warnings. Like this will learning about Canadian law is you know and how it's treated our people. It's no picnic, um, and I can I think that that can be quite um, you know hard uh, and and also sometimes I think demoralizing, um, but what I see with our students who take the indigenous law course is that it is uh, very empowering for them and for for some um, you know they they said that it you know was the highlight of uh, of their law school career and to know that there's a place that they can um, they can um, th th there is a role for you know the the way that their communities think and uh, and a role for them perhaps in in, in doing uh, this work um, I just think I have one particular student that I knew that this class would just be really great for him. And he's very brilliant, but was getting really quite jaded with law school. Um, and he took the Indigenous law course. And uh, I think my favorite was I got a text from him at like on a Friday night see, saying he was reading Darcy Lindbergh's uh, Beautiful Creeness, which is an amazing article, but how it just kind of just changed him. <laughs> and he'd never read a, a law article on, you know, on a Friday <laughs> evening. And this was just, and he's been writing and thinking like uh, in, in the same vein as the way Darcy has since. And it's, uh, it's wonderful to see that. At Lawyers Financial, your satisfaction is our success. It's not that money doesn't matter. Financial, it's right there in our name. But we're not for profit, and that gives us the freedom to give you break-even pricing on insurance and investment solutions, and exclusive rates on home, auto, life, and disability insurance, just to name a few. At Lawyers Financial, we focus on you, so you can focus on your family, your firm, and your future. And that sounds like success by any measure.
You know, we've talked a lot about students. What about for those of us who are a bit longer in the tooth or much longer in the tooth? You know, I, I went to law school in Manitoba in the 90s and we didn't have these courses. We sort of had a, you know, the standard seminar course uh, elective where basically the students did presentations on their papers. What, what, what about practitioners who I guess both want and need to learn about this. What what would you say to them? You know, there's some really good CLE opportunities out there that are very innovative. That could be land-based. Uh, they could be course opportunities in intensive uh, formats. There, of course, is the conventional type of CLE over a couple of hours with a lecture. Um, there's also the opportunities to do pro bono work and through pro bono work, find yourself intermingling with uh, the, the, the area in a new light. Um, hiring students is a huge thing for uh, lawyers. They, they bring that energy in and those ideas in that are coming uh, from the courses that they're taking, like from Naomi and Hadley and Val and others. And, and so there's kind of a renewal that occurs if you can see yourself learning uh, with your students uh, as you're on that path as well. And then again, this point I was making about lifelong learning, if we adopt an, an Indigenous ethic, uh, we see ourselves as um, just passing along something rather than owning it or saying that we're the expert in this. Uh, we're just the, the latest generation to try to do the best that we can and uh, perfection is not uh, expected. It's the idea, again, that we would participate with one another, that we would see this as a verb and we would come in wherever we are um, on our, our learning and life's journey and find a place of possibility in uh, that engagement. And, and so there, there are many just different ways that uh, we could find that um, possibility, even if we're not in the law schools at this moment. Yeah, um, we, uh, uh, since I've been at the school, we've added quite a few more courses and we've got a new hire coming in who's another Mi'kmaq woman. So that's very exciting. So we'll, there'll be even more courses. Uh, we have uh, offered a, a certificate uh, for our students because there's now enough courses to permit that. And one of the funny, or not funny, but wonderful things about that is that uh, there's been some attention around that and we've got people reaching out to us uh, practitioners saying, boy, I'd really like to have that certificate. So I think there's a, a real interest uh, that I'm seeing um, right now that I don't uh, capacity wise, we're not at that uh, point to be able to, but I think that that would definitely be something I mean, I'm, I'm interested in that both, not just for practicing lawyers, but also um, something adjacent to that for community members, uh, you know, from our first nations uh, as well. Um, but I think that uh, things are growing, as I say. We're, we're, we've added uh, two new Mi'kmaq professors to our law school uh, recently. Um, there are more grad students who are coming about, and, and John, um, you know, uh, uh, through UVic, will be having a national center. And I think that there can be some opportunities there, um, um, a national center on Indigenous law, to to think as uh, you know, kind of this collective uh, of um, Indigenous law professors and and plus, uh, and be able to maybe think about what we might offer, um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, additional CE, CLE or, or, or programs um, for 
lawyers, because I, I do think that there's a real growing interest and I that makes me very happy. Um, I also would put on our to-do list, John, not that it's yours is, I'm sure, very <laughs> long, um, but uh, we also have to look at judges as well. My podcast series is about the calls to action, so I should probably ask you each a couple of questions about specific calls to action. But before I do that, I want to I want to ask you about an experience that I had and your viewpoints on it. Uh, probably 20 years ago, I was working with a First Nation here in Manitoba, and uh, they had they had purchased some land that they were going to add to their add to their reserve, and the land in question had some public utility infrastructure on it. And it, as part of the additions to reserve process, that that interest had to be accommodated somehow. And the the, um, the public utility was insisting upon this form of easement interest. And, and I remember being at a meeting and the chief and counsel were there and the, uh, the, the lawyer from the public utility was just insisting this is how things had to be done. And one of the counselors spoke up and he said, um, this, this isn't how we've done things on the existing reserve land base that we have right now. Uh, when we need this infrastructure, we call you guys up, you come out, we show you where you need it. And uh, we do a council resolution and, and, and you put the infrastructure in and that's that. And the, the lawyer just scoffed at that and said, there's, there's no way, we, we've never done that here or anywhere else. We've always had this easement interest. And, you know, and I, I my, my Western trained mind was going, yeah, I just, uh, why, would they, why would they have done that? And whereas the other part of my brain was going, there's something that this counselor was, was saying, and, and, and subsequent to that, one of the elders said the same thing. And I went, there's something here, and I, I don't know what it is. And, and so I, I, especially as I was driving back to the city and thinking more and more about it, and I went into the land registry system, and, and surprise, surprise, this public utility had never, ever been issued uh, an Indian Act permit or an easement or anything for any of the probably hundreds of miles of infrastructure they had on on this First Nations Reserve. And um, and then the next meeting, it was very interesting because the, the dynamic of the table had changed radically. Um, did, did I experience an Indigenous legal tradition there? I mean, it was, uh, you know, it, it, there's a humorous aspect to it, but there's, um, it was just something so moving about it as I think about it years later. I really love that example because it does illustrate what we were trying to talk about earlier, which is law is something you do, it's not something that's just done to you. And so here are these um, counselors and elders that are trying to work with a lawyer and create law together, co-determine the way that they might interact in this space uh, to have different interests in land be present there and yet recognize that this is going to be reserve land. And so the example is amazing because it shows that uh, it should be multi-directional in the way that we function, um, that there's room for reciprocal elucidation here. And to the extent that that lawyer wasn't taking um, those cues and recognizing that uh, a law is a pro process of problem solving, 
um, then we're not necessarily doing our work in an appropriate way. And, and in what's also interesting is it's not just an example of Indigenous law, but it's an example of how the, the addition of Indigenous law can actually redirect us back to the legislation in this case and cause us to see something that uh, wasn't being taken up by that utility in that context. So we often say that teaching transsystemically is not just about the resurgence of Indigenous law, it's opening up new possibilities for the common law legislation to see that in a new light. And to the extent that we have the resurgence of Indigenous law and the resurgence of the common law in ways that are participatory and in ways that don't just uh, have this top-down effect, but really do engage us in uh, a democracy that uh, facilitates the dignity and, and, and worth of different uh, folks that are trying to get their points of view across and then coordinate that with some uh, sense of certainty as uh, these agreements are put together. I really think that that uh, is a case study for um, Indigenous law. And I'd like to actually pull out this call to action which is two lawyers through the Federation of Law Societies to receive appropriate cultural competency training, which includes all these histories of residential schools and UNDRIP and treaties and Aboriginal rights and Indigenous law and Aboriginal Crown relations, but also says requires the skills-based training and intercultural competency, conflict resolution, human rights and anti-racism. This 27th call to action um, just fits to this uh, example you've given us because it shows if that lawyer could have pulled on that intercultural competency and had the skills based around conflict resolution that had this context uh, of how Indigenous peoples are in their own laws and then how their own laws relate to the Canadian state. Uh, there's just so much room for adding to our opportunities and possibilities as lawyers. It, it, uh, it gives us more tools and more off-ramps and more um, um, opportunities, as I said, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing in my view. Naomi, what do you think of my example? <laughs> what John said. No, uh, John, I mean, that, that's a beautiful answer. And it just, uh, it just had me reflecting because I, you know, practiced for 10 years and primarily like you, uh, Brad, like uh, working a lot with communities, but working pretty well with Canadian law and how, you know, when you sometimes just come from that vantage point, it almost looks like there's, you know, voids and stuff like that that are created by the Indian Act. But I think that's just a construction of, uh, so I was, you know, your example makes me think of, you know, that I recently taught uh, my students about, you know, the, um, uh, the certificate of possession on reserve and like, you know, how so many communities don't even go with certificate of possession and they have, you know, customary allotments. And, you know, there's even like a really recent case I brought to my students' attention where, you know, the, the courts still really just look at, well, there's nothing in the Indian Act that relates to this particular form of land holding. So, you know, it's nothing, <laughs> essentially. Um, but there's so much room for it. And I think, I, I actually, I think I directed somebody to you recently, John, I, I forget which of your books it's in, but actually talking about the opportunity of looking at what, you know, from the outside might look like to avoid, as a void. I mean, there, there, we can look to Indigenous law, um, you know, on, on the issue of, 
customary holdings in communities. And it and it seems that, you know, this is a sort of a, adjacent to that example that you were just giving, Brad. And so um, it can really change the perspective that there there is law here. And in fact, um, we can we can work with it and 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 harness it and and yeah, have way more tools in the toolbox uh, to be able to address situations. Thanks for thanks for that. I, 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 we, we're not have a lot of time left, but I got to ask you about a couple of calls to action. So, uh, the first one I'm going to ask you about is is number forty two, and this is where the call to action asks federal, provincial, and territorial governments to commit to the recognition and implementation of Aboriginal justice systems <clears throat> in a manner consistent with treaty and Aboriginal rights of Aboriginal peoples, the Constitution Act 1982, and the UN uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. What what does that mean to you? Um, it means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is access to justice. Um, when people have the ability to secure institutions and resources to answer questions that don't cost a million dollars, that are in their backyard, that to have a check and balance function in relationship to say council or other authorities that are you know, influencing their lives, it, it allows for uh, people to secure answers to their questions in ways that facilitate commercial transactions, uh, uh, address human rights, um, help us with you know, personal injuries and contract issues. And so you know, this 42nd call to action is just really critical because it says that um, you know, the governments commit to the recognition and implementation of Aboriginal justice systems in a manner consistent with the Aboriginal treaty rights, the Constitution Act, UNDRIP, uh, has been endorsed by Canada. And I taught a course in tribal courts when I was at the University of Minnesota Law School for five years. And it was over a thousand page casebook. And it just gave me huge confidence to see how uh, First Nations in the United States, uh, which are similarly situated socially to uh, First Nations in Canada, can pick up that work and use their language, their stories, their own constitutions, their own laws, their own uh, members to provide independent, impartial decisions that uh, are of the highest standard, that have rigor attached to them, that uh, allow for a transparency and an accountability that is uh, lacking at this moment. And so I think that there's so much in this call to action which is uh, necessary for access to justice. Naomi? I come from it from that uh, perspective as well. Like I just, um, some of the projects that I've been involved with, I mean, I, I do a lot looking at um, inequality with respect to uh, provision of, of, of services. And a lot of my work is so focused on child welfare and essential welfare, but Recently, I've uh, really, uh, another area that I will add to that is justice, that justice services have been sort of treated like other services to Indigenous peoples, is, you know, governments fighting between themselves about which one doesn't have responsibility, treating it like the perennial hot potato. Um, meanwhile, communities are not, you know, uh, justice is really important in terms of, you know, decision making and accountability and transparency, the way, the beautiful way that uh, John articulated it. And, uh, you know, that is so fundamental, security and safety um, in a broad sense and being able to uh, have control over, you know, how we interact with each other is, is so, is so fundamental. Um, and, 
you know, I, I yeah. So I mean, that's what it means to me and about Indigenous communities having uh, so much of a greater role. One of the recent projects, which doesn't sound related to Indigenous law, that I've just spent a lot of time on, is a very big report looking at Indian Act bylaws and their enforcement. And I know you, I yeah, started that off with the word Indian Act, but I happen to take the view that I'm a very kind of creative practitioner, I guess, and I think that we could actually kind of bring Indigenous law into uh, uh, that, but there's a sort of a broader question about enforcement. And I saw so many ways in which um, our laws are not being enforced or respected. And there's just such a huge need. I was um, quite happy in some of my recent research of updating my report and getting it ready to come, go out um, that uh, there's a recent case out of Ontario involving the Pagangicum First Nation um, where a judge actually found that, uh, you know, not having access to uh, justice services in the community was a, a violation of, of, of Section 15. Um, and what's really interesting about the decision is, is that it informs that with a treaty analysis uh, about, you know, what, what, it, what a good treaty partners do from each other and that, um, you know, that the Crown, neither Crown was really living up to sort of uh, the justice provisions in the, the treaty uh, about, you know, uh, uh, providing for um, you know, each other and mutual assistance clauses. Um, anyway, I, I mean, that all sort of feeds into it. Um, and I, and I really do think that it's, it's really important for the well-being of Indigenous people to be able to have uh, functional, um, well-resourced uh, justice systems that serve their needs and reflect their wants. Thank you for that. You've already got, you've already got the juices in my head starting to, to think about how I'm going to incorporate that into my arguments on some matters that I'm working on. <laughs> um, call to Action 50 calls upon the federal government to fund the establishment of an Indigenous Law Institute or Institutes for the Development, Use and Understanding of Indigenous Laws and Access to Justice. How do each of you, even blue skying here, how do each of you view that or envision that? Well, you know, here at the University of Victoria, as Naomi mentioned earlier, we have um, National Indigenous uh, Lodge, Learning Lodge, and that is to share conversations and opportunities and work across the country to ensure that there's a virtual uh, discussion, with, which is not housed in any particular place, but uh, roves from place to place to place as we, we support and work with one another, but then also having a building here, which is funded by the uh, governments and the Law Foundation of British Columbia, which is a place to gather uh, here in Victoria uh, to do some of that work as a national uh, uh, setting. But then seeing that those might also be with the Wakotuan Lodge, as uh, we find it at the University of Alberta, or the, the Turrell, um, um, forget the name of the lodge now, in, in, um, in Manitoba that Dave Koshan's a part of, uh, that uh, we would see that Indigenous peoples bring forward their own ideas about how to talk with one another, work with one another, support one another, provide resources to one another, and that requires funding. There's capacity that's needed, there's uh, physical uh, buildings that are needed, and then there's also the virtual connectivity that's needed, because really the work of Indigenous law ultimately is in the communities, and these lodges, uh, these, these, these places to gather and uh, support one another, um, again, have to be transparent and look forward and out to other places. They can't kind of swallow up all the air 
in the room, as it were, and just think that uh, all the law happens in an institution because it never does. Uh, these institutions should be um, kind of like superchargers that uh, send out and through um, their the work uh, that, 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 that happens as people convene and support one another in that way. Naomi, what's your view on this call to action? Uh, yeah, very similarly. I mean, we're I'm, we're still sort of working too, but it's a vision, and I had put in a, a grant that unfortunately wasn't accepted, but I, I I thought it was a really good grant, so I'm going to keep running with it. But it's the same sort of idea uh, uh, in in Mi'kmaq. The the word for uh, structure or lodge is wigawom or wigawomul, and debudahan uh, is the word for law, and we put those two together, and this sort of, but but but. In, in the vision of it, sort of saying like Mi'kmaq were mobile, <laughs> we were, you know, around our territory and, uh, you know, you would bring your lodge to your, your Wigwam to different parts of the territory, right? So the idea that there would be not just one central repository of places, just as the way John was, but sort of looking at, yeah, the proposal was really looking at Mi'kmaq and serving primarily the, uh, not just Mi'kmaq, but other First Nations in the Atlantic region, but I sort of, yeah, it's this idea that it's not housed, there's not one place that, that is the authority upon that, but uh, there can be, you know, uh, uh, Wigwams, Debudahan um, Wigwams in, in uh, maybe at the law school, but also maybe at uh, Cape Breton University where they have a, a Mi'kmaq um, Institute there as well. And, and then in communities, right, that there can be these different law lodges um, in different places and that, 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 that support on uh, that support each other, and you know maybe maybe the universities have a particular role in you know uh, the the training um, and support, but uh, really seeing that as to really take off and work, it does have to really kind of um, take off in in various corners, right? So um, same idea, and I think it has to happen on a regional level, um, and and there has to be regional supports for that, but then. I love this idea too of kind of having a, um, uh, you know, a different uh, institutes being, uh, lack of a better word, sisters to each other, you know, our family, and that we are working together and supporting each other. Um, so that, I think that's how I'd love to see that the, the model of, you know, Indigenous law institutes, it's not just one, but it's many working together to support our communities and to support our allies in working with our communities. Naomi, John, uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time. We could probably talk about these issues for hours and hours, and hopefully someday we can and in person. Uh, I just want to thank both of you for coming here and being so forthright and honest and, and, and open with your views on it. Uh, any, any last words from either of you? No, I always enjoy these kind of conversations and appreciate the work both of you are doing. And I know that you're representative uh, of so much of the work that's happening across the country. This is a, a, a movement. We are living in a time of renaissance and resurgence and to recognize that fact, I think gives us some intentionality about uh, this, this historic moment that we find ourselves in and what the possibilities are as a result. To that, I'll just say ditto. <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, Alan, thank you. Uh, well, uh, well Ali, thank you both. Um, yeah, it's just been great. Take care. We want to hear your stories about your experience as an Indigenous person with the legal profession, as a practitioner, as a student, or as an academic. Let us know on Twitter at, at CBA underscore news, 
on Facebook and on Instagram at at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juris Branche podcast. <laughs>